I'm going to begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to the end, verse 31, and then the first five verses of chapter 2. Here we go. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of great power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Circle that word power. I want us for a moment to talk about power. He mentions it power in verses four and verses five of this second chapter. So let's talk a moment about power. Everybody wants power. Hear me out. Don't jump to, to a, a conclusion here, but everybody wants power. Everybody needs power. You need power. You need power to live your life. You need power to persist, to continue going when things are hard. Uh, you need power to face the day. Uh, for some of you, it's very real. You need power to be able to go to sleep tonight. You need power to be able to get up in the morning and face what you must face. You need power to become the kind of person that you want to be. You need power uh, to do the things that you desire to do, to live out your values, to live out God's values. You need power. Power is such a beautiful thing. And power, the opposite of power, is powerlessness, feeling that feeling of not having power, not having a voice. In fact, let me insert this in here at the beginning. The, the message of God from beginning to end in this book is that we would find our power in God and that we would use our power to help the powerless. There's a buzzword in business and church. I mean, it's everywhere. It's uh, the word empower. And it sounds like in power, like who's in power, but it's empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, empower. And we, uh, I, think, I think it's a good word. I'm not here to make fun of it, but I, I was noticing this week online that people do make fun of it because it's this buzzword of well, let, let us empower you. We're here to empower you. And we throw it around so easily, but it's kind of sneaky because sometimes we empower people to do, to get, and we get them to do what we want them to do. Let me empower you, honey, to make breakfast for me this morning. Let me empower you. Like we, we use this um, very um, nonchalantly and we were, we were dulled by what it, what it really means. But power is this really important thing. And for us to give the powerless a voice, to give the voiceless a voice, to speak uh, on their behalf, to think about the poor and the lowly and the disadvantaged, uh, that is uh, God's heart. And I want us to follow him uh, with his heart. What power do you need today? Where do you feel uh, weak? Where do you feel like you don't have the inner strength that you need? Um, let God be the one who genuinely empowers you this morning. There's been a lot of study. In fact, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I told the first service this, but I, there's a whole like st branch of research and study uh, on power and what it does for us. There's a, a professor out west, uh, Diedrich Keltner, and he wrote um, some really good research about power to the human, how getting power, ascending to power, procuring it and walking with it and having power over others, what it does uh, to our humanity. 
And he did a study, uh, it's kind of difficult to convey, but you can research it if you're a note taker, you got that name. But he did a study where he would bring three people in a room and then th they would have discussion around a table. There would be a random discussion, some things they were prompted to, to learn and debate maybe. And then there was, there was a leader appointed and he would bring in uh, four cookies to each of the three. And guess who uh, in, in the group would get the fourth cookie? Almost every time it was the appointed leader of the three would get the fourth cookie. What does power do to us? What rights do we think that we have over other people? Why do we think we get the fourth cookie? Because we're uh, the leader. The Atlantic Monthly did an article. I'll show you the, the image that they chose. They did an article and they entitled it, and some have disputed this, but their article stated flatly that power uh, corrupts the human brain. You see the image they chose was, I think that's a brain cell. And inside the brain cell is a flex, a muscle. Someone's flexing the power that they have. And they, they did something. Uh, they used this um, device. Uh, they refer to it as transcranial magnetic imaging stimulation. So they, that sounds painful, doesn't it? Don't try that at home. But they, they looked at the brain when, the, when someone possesses power. It actually erodes um, empathy. It elevates a person to the point where they think the world is their world. And you can actually see that process take place in the brain, how it alters us. Less sympathetic, less understanding of someone else's a point of view and an elevation of the world as their world. I will seek my own uh, satisfaction, my own personal self-glorification, grat gratification. And it can be subtle. Now, listen, power abuse and misuse is on display. It is in high definition, technicolor, d digital Dolby surround sound in business and finance. I would say uh, more so in politics and in the church. Well, when people abuse their power, it, it hurts and it's been brought out. We have tools and devices now to parade the failures of people and their abuse of power. If anybody in leadership, this is one you want to get right. Uh, money, sex, and power, right? That's a whole, whole sermon series. But power is so important and our use of it or our misuse or our, therefore our abuse of power is something that we need to get clearer on what it looks like what it means. I want to put up some references, some biblical references. I'm going to do this a couple of times during this sermon, so it'd be great if you want to take a picture or jot these down. I'll tell you what they say. Zechariah 4, 6 uh, says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The connotations are that we can, we can clench our fist and we can do things on our own, but there's something bigger. The, uh, Proverbs 3, don't trust in your own understanding, your own wisdom. Lean, lean not on that. But look to the Lord. There's something outside of ourselves. There's a different power, vastly different and more beautiful than human power. Not by, my, not by power, but by the Spirit. Acts 1.8, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples, wait. Why did he tell them to wait? Because they didn't get it. They didn't fully. He had been teaching them. He had told them in John 16 that the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The, the Spirit will be paracletus. He will come alongside you. He will comfort you. He will give you the words that you need to speak uh, in the moment when you need to speak them. It doesn't mean don't have a sermon manuscript, but just be ready in that moment because you don't know, uh, John 3, the work of the Spirit's like the wind. We don't know where it comes from, what direction it's going. So, so be ready, but that's what the Spirit will do. But he said, wait, because you need to be filled with the Spirit. And wait here so that you'll be filled with the Spirit. And in the Bible, 
when people are filled with the Spirit, there's images, metaphors, or actual realities of fire, of earthquakes. Of, of it, it signifies God doing something that's out of the ordinary, which is the heart of God. God wants to fill us with the Spirit. John 4, Jesus said when he invites us to pray, I think either Daniel or Lauren may have prayed at this service or last service. Lord, we want to we worship you in spirit and in truth. Jesus says God is spirit. What does that mean? It means he's the foundation of reality. He's the beginning and the end. By his words, he spoke us into existence, all that we see. We say it often around here that when we gather for worship, we're reminding ourselves that sin, that salvation is greater than sin, that life is greater than death, and that what we see is not all there is. There is a God, an invisible God, the writer of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, the great faith hall of fame. He would say in the third verse that we have come to believe this by faith. That what is created, what we see was made in part by, by what is invisible. There is someone behind it all. It is God and God is spirit. Many people this week have engaged me in a conversation about Asbury and about the revival that appears to be happening in Kentucky. When a group of students have gathered uh, for worship and they went past an hour and they kept going and they've been going for well over a week and now there are thousands of people lined up to get in. Now, I'm trying to be smart and not offer any serious commentary, number one, because I don't have to, number two, um, because I want to see how this thing um, develops, because Jesus said, we will, be no, we will know others by their fruit, we will be known by the fruit, and I want to see the fruit of this play out, but I will say this, man, if you don't want that to be genuine, something's wrong with your faith. Can, can I say that? Like if you're already, if, like if your proclivity and your inclination is to go against that, like check your spirit. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. You just listen as I talk to the family of God. All right, but if you're a Christ follower and you don't want it to be genuine, we'll find out the genuineness of it. But God, is, God desires to do a work in us that's beyond an hour on Sunday morning. And he desires to stir something up in us. God desires to give us his power. Now, we often say, we often say that um, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, and, you know, that gets you points. If you're in any crowd uh, out there, especially with young people, man, you win points right there. If you're like, I'm spiritual, I'm not religion. I'm not suggesting that it's not genuine for all of you. I just want to kind of pounce on it and say this. We're all spiritual. Everybody is spiritual. I know we like to draw the line, and I, I know we're against uh, organized religion, certainly the abuse of power. But I, so I get the dichotomy there. But I, I just want to tell you, uh, Paul would say, in court, like we're all, now he talks about carnality and spirituality, and we'll get there very, very soon. But hey, we're all spiritual beings. Uh, you have intentions. You have desires. You have thoughts. When's the last time you saw an intention or saw a desire or saw a thought? You have a will. Anybody, parents of young children, maybe you have one kid. If they're in the room, don't raise your hand. But maybe you have a kid that's strong-willed, right? Do you, do you actually see that will? You don't see that will. You see the manifestation of that strong will. I know you do. But you don't see that will. You have intentions. I was, oh, I was going to do this. I mean to do this. Oh, I wish I would get around to. You don't see that intention. But can I ask you, is it real? Is that, it's, that, that intention is just as real as the fingers I'm waving right now. So you are a spiritual being. It's how God made you. Uh, we got proof here, but we got proof here. You know that you're a spiritual being. And so here's what Paul is writing. I want to put these verses up and just tell you what they say. He would say in Ephesians 6.18, he says, um, I pray, I pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayer and request. So real quick, again, I pray in the spirit 
on all occasions with all prayers and requests. Several years ago, um, I was living in Southern California. I was, it was 1992. I was at a, a thing called the Ethics Institute. It was an immersive study environment in Redlands, California. And I was um, called, I had a, a thing on my calendar where I was called to speak to a group of college students from around the country, um, 60, 70 college students from around the country that were studying, uh, some of them joining staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. They call it Crew now. And the, the conference that I was going to speak at was um, north of Lake Arrowhead. So not that far, but it was kind of tricky to navigate the terrain and get up there. And I was familiar with San Bernardino a little bit, but to get up into the mountains and get to the right conference center was a problem for me. But 1992, remember what you had in 1992? You didn't have a cell phone. You had no map quest. You know what many of us had? The, the uh, high achievers like me? Huh. Uh, we had a day timer. Anybody remember the day timer? And everything was in your day timer. So I, go, I walked to my car to head there, and I was a couple hours away from speaking and a little bit of pregame jitters, but I, I put my, the daytimer on the hood of the car and had a backpack and I slung it into the passenger's floorboard and put my cup of coffee in the coffee holder and I drove off. And in my daytimer was the address, the event coordinator, the notes to my talk, and lots of names and numbers of people that I had friends with back home and everywhere. And I drove off. And it occurred to me as I went from the apartment in Redlands to get on the California freeway that that daytime was on the top of the car. And it, of course, blew off. And I circled back. I did what you did. I panicked. I uh, went through a period of self-loathing. I retraced my steps. And then I just I stopped. And there was a, pl- a point where I found some pages because I prayed, panicked and prayed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, God is so good. This is a miracle I'm going to be telling one day. And I went to the pages, and it was nothing it was like dates from you know a year from now and had nothing imported on it none of the information that I needed so desperately in that moment but I stopped and I prayed and my prayers weren't eloquent prayers but they were sincere prayers prayers like why God why me where are you why Lord why Lord help me help me Jesus help me now and in that moment a a car pulls up to me and a woman rolled down she rolls down her window and she waves at me and she has a daytime And she says, I found this down the road a few miles. And the Holy Spirit prompted me to come and give this to you. And as she handed it to me, she asked me, she said, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And I said, believe in him? Lady, I work for him. (laughs) I'm I'm on the org chart. It's a little bitty square way down there. But like I work for him here's what I have found I am like you I live in this world I live in my earthly tent I am plagued with my sin and my doubt just like you I feel like my prayers bounce off the ceiling maybe just as much as some of you I don't want to disappoint you but that's the world I live in but I'm going to tell you there are times when I have prayed in the spirit on different occasions with many prayers and requests and coincidences like that happen a lot more often when you pray than when you don't. And Paul wants us to know that when it comes to this power, there's a power that's available to us. It's available to us and it's compatible with our human weakness. And it comes to us when we cry out to him. In Ephesians three sixteen, he says, 
to the church at Ephesus. Now, there's four really, really important cities at the time of these writings. Jerusalem was one of them. Ephesus was one of them. Antioch was one of them. And Corinth was one of them. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says, um, I pray that God, according to God's glorious riches, you will be strengthened uh, in power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. One more time. I, according to God's glorious riches, I pray that you will be strengthened with power through the Spirit uh, in, in the innermost being of who you are. I pray that you would know God's power in your life. So there's this power that he's talking about. There's this power that might be happening in Asbury, Kentucky. There's this power that may be even bigger than Kentucky that may, God may be wanting to do something uh, in his church today. There's a power that, that we could get in tune with at Fondren Church that could affect your life. There's a power and it's beyond a human power. It's a power that's available to all. It's a power that's compatible with our weakness. It's a power that won't make you puffed up with arrogance and pride. And when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, oh, oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, he says you've been bought with a price. He's about to get to communion in 1 Corinthians 11 and the instructions of how the church should take the Lord's Supper. But he reminds them ahead of time in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you've been bought with a price. Christ died for you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, your body, you've heard this, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Some of you work out at the gym, and then you go to the beach and take your shirt off to try to remind us that you're a glorious temple. And listen, the temple, the, your body is a temple. And here collectively, every individual thing that we think we see in Scripture, we need to put a community around it. So your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that I tell everybody, especially young people, Listen, and the church has messed people up with extreme evangelical purity culture. But look, your body is not cheap. Your sexuality is sacred. God cares about you and he wants us to treat, he wants you to treat your body not as a, a, a rental car with unlimited mileage, not giving it away cheaply and freely to other people, but possessing your vessel, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, in sanctification and honor. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is in you. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Now, Paul says in, the, in this passage, he says, I came to you, depending on the English translation you had. We read today from the ESV. But he says, I came to you with weakness. I came to you with great fear and with trembling. And notice all of that. He doesn't just say, I came to you with fear. He says, I came to you with great fear. I came to you not just with great fear. I came to you with great fear and weakness. I didn't just come to you with great fear and weakness. I came to you with great fear, weakness, and trembling. Who trembles? When's the last time you trembled? When should you tremble? Y'all know, I, it's no secret, I do a whole lot of weddings. And I stand with bride and groom, and I've got the best seat in the house. And it, it's just happening more and more today where a, a couple will stand, and they'll look at each other. And when we're doing the rings, a lot of times they're just trembling. And I look at the groom, I'm like, dude, you should tremble. I mean, you should tremble. You're about to get married. Tremble, tremble. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet says, Trem we tremble at his word. If you come in here and yawn, or you expect this to be entertainment, a, a, a venue for, to critique and judge uh, the value of whatever. Look, we should tremble at his word. God, what do you want to say to me today? Despite the messenger, what do you want to say to me? And to tremble at his word with a sense of, I'll, I will obey you. Someone told me this week in pain, they said, man, the culture is so confusing today. You know what I said back to him? Didn't have to be. I didn't want to, I didn't want to sound haughty, but I'm just like, it doesn't have to be. God's made some stuff clear. God's made some stuff simple. And to tremble at his word, we don't have to be confused at some of the things we're confused about. 
It's, it, we're going to have trouble in this world. and it, it, there's, There are confusing elements, and we need God's wisdom. But if you tremble at his word, so trembling is a good thing, but there's a kind of trembling that nobody wants. You, if you've got a job interview tomorrow or anytime soon, no one's going to give you advice to go and fidget. They're not going to tell you to tremble. They're going to tell you to have assurance and confidence and poise, have, have a, a, a professional demeanor, and whatever you do, don't tremble. Because you are to project strength. If you want the job, project strength. If I'm going to preach a sermon, I probably need to project strength. If I'm going to be a pastor, I need to, if I'm going to be a husband, a parent, a father, I need to project strength. And Paul's like, what? what? I come to you with weakness and great fear and trembling. Who does that? And why would Paul, who was brilliant, who studied under this uh, leading rabbi, if you went to an Ivy League school and you came back to Jackson, you probably wouldn't be trembling. You'd be strutting your stuff. Because you were educated. You're smart. You tell us where you went to school. And Paul had that. He had brilliance. But here's what he also had. You know this. He had a thorn in the flesh. I bet some of us do or will. He had something that he cried out to God. He wanted God to take it away from him. And God didn't. But he was beginning to see that in all of his life that he had a problem with pride and conceit. So God wouldn't remove this thorn of the flesh to humble him. Can I just say, leave room in your theology for that? Like, I know you, you want to come and get a blessing and a miracle. and like, You know, if I could pass them out, I would, but I can't. But like, I want miracles and blessings for you. But you also need to walk with difficulty. And you, whatever, God, whatever God's using to humble you, look, it happens to me. Ask her. No, don't ask her. He uses her and other people in my life. I tell people often, I, I go home and I'm humble because it's a family. I got to be real. I got to be just like you. And God will use pain in your life to humble you and refine you and discipline you. Read Hebrews 12. If you, if you are kicking against the goads, read Hebrews 12. But he'll use that stuff to, to refine you. And that's Paul saying, man, I ask of God and he wouldn't take it away. So I'm trembling. I am trembling. I am weak. Uh, scholars have long debated what the thorn in the flesh was. I'll say this flatly. I think it's brilliant of God through Paul not to tell us. Because if he told us, we'd make it about that thing. Because, I mean, even though I preached about it, and you'll probably hear more about it, it's not about Kentucky. It's not about Asbury. It's not about those people. Like, we want to make it about that, don't we? But it's not. And it's not about, I, if you ask me, if you pressed me at gunpoint, I would say I would, th- I would think it's a vision problem. Others have uh, brought up the theory of epilepsy. Um, that he had these epileptic seizures. Others thought, you know, he's been beaten and shipwrecked, uh, all these other things, uh, run out of town and stoned. That's not good. If you had a bad day, I bet you weren't beaten and shipwrecked and stoned. Uh, He could have had PTSD with what he went through. Maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. He had post-traumatic stress disorder. He struggled badly. He felt really weak because of the pain that he had to endure. But whatever it was, Paul's like, I'm writing to you in this fear, great fear, weakness and trembling. But God is greater than any of that. Excuse me for, as I adjust a minute, but I want to draw a contrast between two really, really important words. Um, you see them in this stretch of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, and we see them in many places of the Bible. On the left here are the words, and these words are uh, prevalent. We use them, and they're so self-defeating. It's the simple words, but I. We use them in simple ways. I should call my mom, but I'm busy. I should work out, but I'm sore. I should live life with more peace and 
more relaxed nature, but I sure can worry well. I'm good. I've got the gift of worry and fretting. I should do these things. The, the person that you should become, the things that you should do, the realms of obedience that God is calling you to, often these two words, the very things that trip you up. And here's what I found. These two words don't just prevent you from succeeding. They, they stop you from even trying. But I. And in the Bible, God comes to many people. He comes to Moses and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to preach the release of the captivity of my people. Let my people go. Go tell Pharaoh that. And Moses says, but I have a fat tongue. I am slow. I am not a good public speaker, but I. God goes to Gideon and says, hey, I want you to have a conversation so that we can be free from the Midianites. And Gideon says, but I am an only child, but I have these weaknesses. Um, God goes to Jeremiah and he says, I want you to preach the word. Even if there's not a lot of fruit, even if you don't grow a big church, I want you to preach the word. And Jeremiah says, but I am an only child, but I am too young. God goes to Esther and says, I want you to go to the king and I want you to tell him to save Israel. And Esther says, but I haven't heard from the king in 30 days. God goes to a man named Peter while he's fishing and he says, I want you to cast your nets on the other side. And Peter responds by saying, help me. He says, but I have been fishing all night. But I, but I, I want to say it one more time, hoping that it lands with somebody. These two words would defeat us. These two words will not only stop you from succeeding, they will prevent you from even trying. But I. There's two other words that we find as an invitation in the Bible. In fact, Gina, if you would put those list of scriptures up, I'll tell you what each one says. Joseph, you know the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He got a bad lot in life. Genesis 50, 20, what they meant for evil. They meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Psalm 37, verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail. They will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Matthew 19, 26, with man, this is not possible. But God, with God, all things are possible. First Samuel 16, 7. They were needing to appoint a leader. Um, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. When we gather on Sunday, when we get in groups, when we go one-on-one, -on -one, we are all tempted. We ought to start acting like it. We ought to start confessing and realizing that we're all in a battle. It's, it's, your problems aren't as unique as you think they are. Your temptations are not like, wow, I've never heard of this. No temptation. All, all of us have it. But God is faithful. He will deliver us from that temptation. First Corinthians 3, 6. I, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. 
Don't put your eye on a leader. Don't make it about a man or a woman. Yes, we use our gifts, but it's God who causes. This is in God's. As we wait and see what happens in Asbury, Kentucky, we're waiting to see God being in it. Maybe that's what's so perplexing about it is who watered, who planted. Like this is a student gathering. There was no leader. There was no skilled orator. There was no, to my knowledge, no one prompting or manipulating or seeking to, to fabricate something. It just seems like God is doing something here. But I, but God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8, I already preached it a minute ago. Paul says, I was buffeted. I've experienced pain. And three times I asked God to take this away from me. Three times. People have asked me about that. We were talking about it. I mean, I think he prayed probably 3,000 times. But I think there was three times. You ever had a prayer where it's really like you know where you were, you know what you prayed, you know the posture, you know your desperation. But I think there were three times when Paul really got on his knees and knelt before the Father and said, take this away from me. Take this thorn in the flesh. Alleviate this pain. Be the deliverer. Be the healer, God. And then it says, but God told me, and some of you can quote this with me, but God said what? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So there is a power that's beyond human power. It's available to all. It's compatible with our human weakness. It will lead to love and not you being puffed up and proud and arrogant. But God. I would say this, but it'd be tacky. I would ask you, what's your bigger but? Is it but I? Or but God. If I were to say that out loud, y'all would, you know, give me a hard time. But I or but God. Which, which is bigger in your life? Is it what not only stops you from succeeding, but prevents you from even trying? And here's what but God means. In all these scenarios, it means that but God, that this thing doesn't get the final word. Paul's not saying, oh, the thorn in the flesh. It's got the final word. Nope. No, what he's saying is, I can walk through it, but God, is, his grace is sufficient in it. And he'll, his power will be displayed through my weakness. I come to you with great fear, weakness, and trembling because God will use this. He'll use it. Isn't it funny, Paul said this a couple thousand years ago, and every psychologist will tell you that we connect not through our strengths, but through our weaknesses. Isn't that kind of cool? A lot of wisdom in the Bible. But God, but God. But here's what, this says that it doesn't get the final word. The addiction that enslaves you, it doesn't have to have the final word. The depression that defeats you doesn't have to win the day. The future that frightens you doesn't have to overwhelm you. The past that haunts you doesn't have to get the best of you. The addiction that enslaves you, the the problems that you encounter, all of these things, it doesn't have to win but God. So as our team begins to make their way up, I'm always so subtle in the cues, the segues. But as our team makes their way up, and um, I want to ask you, what's biggest in your life? What's defeating you? And where do you need to say today, Holy Spirit, I need your power. Now, we're going to talk in the weeks ahead about what it means to have the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to talk about what it means to have experience the indwelling of the Spirit, the unleashing of the spiritual gifts, the cultivation of the fruit of our lives. We'll probably introduce ideas, of realities of where we grieve the Spirit, where we quench the Spirit. 
And uh, I want to invite you back. I want to invite you back as we look at this. But I want us to think today about how we can trust God with what he wants to do in us. This morning before the first service, some brothers in Christ came into my office. They were welcome. And they laid hands on me and prayed for me. That God would use me and our church. And I felt the love. And they were, in a way, praying over me and my gifting, if you will, all in all its limitations. But I was thinking of them and their gifts. And it was just a time of love where I could tell that God is stirring in us. And as they prayed over me, I kind of tuned out. I trusted them with the Lord. I just kind of tuned out. I prayed for them and leaders in our church and that we would seek the Lord together for his power, for a new power in our lives. I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner man. And before Ephesians 3.16, before he says that, he says, we knelt before the Father. Today, I want to invite you to come and kneel at the altar. If you're a leader, no pressure, but I really would love to see you at the altar to join me to pray that God would work and that what's defeated us and divided us and kept us down and enslaved us, that we would see that as so limiting, that we would look at this and say, but God, you can do this work, but your grace can be sufficient. After those men prayed over me, I I noticed my wallet's missing, so we'll search that for get security. They're already looking on that. But, you know, they entered in here to pray, to pray for you, to pray for both services and to pray for God to work in us. So what I want to ask you to do is stand. And Lauren and the team are going to to sing a song over us. And listen, if you're uncomfortable coming down to the altar, and many of you are, I want to prompt you to overcome your uncomfortableness. But you may want to just uh, sit in your seat and lean over as a posture of prayer. But I would love there to be a physical posture of prayer. Uh, We're getting out on time. Um, We're not trying to contrive something. I just want to ask you to come and kneel and pray before the Father. Ephesians 3, 16. We kneel before the Father. We're asking Him to do a work. And I'm asking you as leaders to come pray with me. Let's pray for God to work in our midst, to use this church to work in us and where we're defeated, that God, but God, would show us His strength. You come today.